Scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word and do pray that you would direct us in the life that we are called to live as members of your kingdom, as members of the church, and as those who are united to Christ and are seeking the things that are above where Christ is. Indeed, we thank you for the apostles' teaching. May you continue to impress it upon our hearts and our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've likely heard the saying that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Meaning that if someone is imitating you, then, well, you should take that as a compliment. For those of you who have younger siblings, perhaps you've noticed this over the years, and in the occasions, perhaps many, when a younger brother or sister dressed like you or was interested in the same thing as you, or if you were doing something, then they immediately wanted to do it too. And maybe it irritated you, and you didn't want them copying you. You may have even protested against it. But again, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It's arguably a way in which their love and admiration for you is expressed. Or to change directions slightly, let's say you wanted to learn a particular sport or skill. What might you do, besides watching YouTube videos, in order to gain competency? Well, you find a teacher and have them instruct you. And invariably in that process, you would learn to imitate them as they show you the correct technique for this, the proper grip for that, or the most efficient motion. And you would learn what it takes in order to gain greater mastery of the skill and the habits that lead to greater competency. Well, there's something of of that in what Paul has been saying since chapter 3 and verse 1 as he's moved to the application or agenda section of his letter to the Colossians, instructing, instructing them how to live in light of the redeeming and reconciling work of Christ, the life from above that they are to pursue in their lives lived out here on the earth. And one of the key themes of this letter is maturity, of growing up. And what we have is Paul giving the prescription for maturity in Christ, for lives that imitate the life and ethic from heaven embodied in the Savior himself, that the church is now to live out in relation to one another and to a watching world. And to become more mature, we must embrace the habits, the actions of maturity, which lead to greater maturity. We do want to grow up. You know, we're not... Peter Pan, nor Toys R Us kids, and the, Lord's, the Lord wants us to grow up too. So as we consider these last few verses before the final greetings, we find that the apostle continues with some imperatives in this section. 
And these closing commands were significant for the Colossians to take seriously, and they're significant for us as the church today. You'll recall that Paul has just been addressing the household made up of inferiors and superiors of the various relationships, wives and husbands, children and parents and slaves and masters. And now his exhortation expands to the whole of the congregation once again. And his first command in verse 2 echoes a familiar refrain in the letter. To the prayer be devoted, keeping watch in it with thanksgiving. So the command is to be devoted to or to continue steadfastly or to give oneself continually. And the object of that devotion is prayer. Paul is setting forth a fundamental of faith, a fundamental aspect of the life of the church in this command, and that the church must be a praying community. Of course, Christians can pray individually. Christians can pray together as families. But there's, there's also the practice of Christians praying together with other Christians, such as what we call prayer beings, that are not like the other two. You know, there's something powerful in community building and faith building and hearing the prayers of others uttered out loud and then adding your amen to what is being prayed. It's part of the reason we have a weekly prayer meeting. And while an in-person meeting is better than one that is online, online is better than none, enabling us as a body of believers to be more devoted to prayer. And Paul's imperative to the Colossians should cause us to reconsider and examine our own selves and and our lives and, and our level of devotion to prayer. A case can be made for a biblical pattern for prayer three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. And I'm not saying you have to be engaged in long stretches of prayer, but I do want to challenge you to the habit of prayer and perhaps even praying at least three times per day. You know, fittingly, this often matches when we eat meals, so I hope you're at least returning thanks for your food. Of course, some of the prayer in which you may need to engage may not be best suited for prayer at a meal, and so you'll need to set aside other time for intercession. But simply note again the command to pray. And this means you pray whether you feel like it or not. Because truth be told, we often don't feel like praying. But discipline beats motivation. And so you pray in obedience to God's word, to his command. That's not a wrong reason to pray. And you might object and say, well, but then prayer can become empty and meaningless and you can end up just going through the motions of prayer. And that's true to a point. But just as much in our practice of spiritual disciplines as in other disciplines in which we engage... The habit and repetition of the body can help the heart and mind to follow. Invariably, there are plenty of days that you don't feel like working out or going for a run or whatever, but you make yourself do it anyway, and pretty soon you're doing it, and you're glad you're doing it, and you're better off than if you'd skipped it. And that doesn't mean that every day is a great day or you feel great. Uh, Some days are better than others, to which many of you can attest, and such is often the life of prayer. Some days it's easy to pray. Other other days you might not feel like your supplications get past the ceiling. But most days are the exercise of the simple devotion of seeking an audience with the Father in heaven, which means giving him thanks and presenting your petitions before him. But notice that Paul attaches two attributes to the prayer to which he's calling the Colossians, watchfulness and thanksgiving. Now, here's that familiar theme of thanksgiving, of gratitude once again. And as Paul has demonstrated thanksgiving in his own prayers in this letter and called these believers to it time and time again, so here it is again as part of his closing commands. 
As one scholar notes, Colossians is one of the most thankful documents in the New Testament. Watchfulness has a number of connotations. To keep guard, to be awake, to be vigilant. The verb that Paul uses here is a participle, denoting ongoing action, but also carries the implication of an imperative. So this keeping watch is is mandatory. It's also a command. And what an interesting combination for prayer. Watchfulness and thanksgiving. Why these two things? Well, what should the Colossians be on the lookout for? Perhaps the Judaizers or other enemies of the gospel? And that's certainly true enough and a fair application of the text and certainly true for the church today to be on the lookout. But the same verb is also used by Jesus. And guess where it first appears in the Gospels? Matthew 24, when Jesus tells them to stay awake in relation to the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus uses it again in Matthew 25 and verse 13 in the same context. But then, do you know when Jesus uses this term again? In Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he takes Peter, James, and John with him and bids them to keep watch, to stay awake, then finds him sleeping and not keeping watch. Mark's gospel presents a similar pattern. The verb is used three times in chapter 13, which is Jesus' teaching on the coming destruction of Jerusalem, and then three times in chapter 14, again in relation to the three disciples with Jesus in Gethsemane. The verb appears only one time in Luke's gospel in allusion to the destruction of Jerusalem, and it isn't used at all by John. It's found one time in Acts 20, when Paul in, in Acts in chapter 20, when Paul admonishes the Ephesian elders, it's found once in 1 Corinthians, twice in 1 Thessalonians 5, once in per, 1 Peter 5, and then three times in John's Revelation. So why provide all this information? Well, given the use of keep or uh, keep watch or awake in Matthew and Mark, and the context in which the word is used in the New Testament epistles we're right to conclude that Paul's use of it here certainly has an application for keeping watch regarding the events leading up to and surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, that's the time period in which the early New Testament church finds herself. You know, all the events which we studied a while back in Matthew 24 and 25, the the timeline that Brian has gone over in his early studies in Acts, The church is called to live in that time between Pentecost in A.D. 30 and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Perhaps we can say that the church is is called to be on high alert during this period of time so as not to be caught unawares or not ready, which we hear in Jesus' admonitions again and again in his teaching and parables. And while there's certainly a sense that the church is always to be on alert, always to be awake, after all, the night is over the day has come we are children of the light it's not nighttime anymore that's the old world the old order when it's light when it's light time it's time to be awake so we're called to perpetual wakefulness but then let's also be sure to recognize that when times are turbulent such as the times in which the new testament church found herself then perhaps we're right to conclude that an extra measure of diligence to be on guard is needed. Certainly that applies for the current state of affairs in our country and really in the rest of the world. And, and that the church, that, that we need to be especially vigilant, not to be taken in by false teaching or led off to extremes or to engage in irrational actions. 
No, the only way in which we should be extreme is how we appear as we pursue the normalcy of life lived unto Christ according to the gospel, even the heavenly one from above, upon which Paul has been expounding since chapter 3 and verse 1. And stop and think about this. It's in the context of tribulation, of world upheaval, of the rise and fall of nations and wars and earthquakes, and all of the things that Jesus said would take place, that Paul instructs the Colossians to lives overflowing with thankfulness. Isn't that remarkable? And isn't that even a further challenge to our own faith and how we conduct ourselves in the current state of affairs to be an eminently grateful people? Many of you probably remember in the late 80s when R.E.M.'s hit song um, refrained, It's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. Well, the church in the first century and the church in the 21st century can readily declare, It's the end of the world as we know it and yet we give thanks. One final point to consider regarding this opening verse is that Paul literally says, The prayer, the, the definite article being present. What's interesting about this is that you will find the same phrasing at some key points in the book of Acts. In chapter 1, right after the ascension of Jesus is recounted, Luke tells us, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to the prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Then in chapter 2, after Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, which took place on a Sunday, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Then in chapter 6, in the context of the institution, the office of deacon, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, when we consider the prayer, the prayer or prayers, uh, where, where that appears and what surrounds it, there's, something, there's some interesting traits that emerge. And we're not entirely wrong to think of the prayer as another way of saying the liturgy or even what we might think of as corporate worship. To refer to the liturgy as the prayer isn't without precedent in the history of the church. And when we consider that instruction in the Word, breaking bread, communion, and fellowship are also connected to its uses, and, well, in one instance, taking place in an upper room, then the case seems even stronger for understanding the terminology in this way. And it isn't necessarily an either-or circumstance, but a both-and. Still more, consider the manner in which the liturgy is a means of keeping guard or urgently staying awake, as well as practicing thanksgiving. Well, Paul moves on in verses 3 and 4 and requests the Colossians to be, to be praying at the same time also for us, so that God may open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of the Christ on account of which also I am bound so that I may make it known as it is necessary for me to speak. Now, I readily notice a couple of things. 
Paul the Apostle, the all-star apostle, is asking the Colossians to pray for him. This is a moment of marvelous condescension on Paul's part. But even more, it's a marvelous display of humility. It's also kind of interesting to consider Paul playing the part of Jesus and the, the church playing the part of the disciples in the garden when Jesus asked them to keep watch and pray for him. Some echoes going on here with all of this. But notice how Paul is drawing the Colossians in and telling them how they can participate in his apostolic ministry and play a vital role in it. Perhaps we don't think enough of prayer, but Paul certainly does. And so maybe our thinking needs to be needs some further correction or maturing. Paul understands that God uses the prayers of his people. As one scholar observes, God is at work through the apostolic preaching, and this work of God must be supported and reinforced by the appropriate weapons, the intercessions of his people. Now, what door needs to be opened isn't entirely clear. Some speculate Paul means his prison door, um, figuratively, that he would be released but the phrasing seems to lend itself more to the advance of the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts 14:27 we read, "And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles." In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul writes, "But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries." That seems to be the same kind of use that Paul is using it here in Colossians. Next, Paul more specifically tells these believers that the purpose for this open door is to speak the mystery of the Christ. The theme of mystery we've noted uh, and encountered before in this letter. What's involved in this mystery? That sanctuary access has been regained in Christ, even a fuller access has been achieved, and that the Gentiles are also included among the saints, among the people of God. And recall that it was on account of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and the charge against him by the Jews that he had a Gentile that he had a Gentile uh, in the temple precinct that had led to Paul, that led to Paul's arrest and being in prison. So this is no small issue for the apostle, but he's arguably more bound to declare the gospel than he's bound by the chains of his imprisonment. He talks about necessity. He talks about what he must do. He asked for the Colossians to pray that he might make the mystery known or make the mystery manifest as it is necessary for him to do. Again, this isn't optional for Paul. It's a driving force of his life, of his calling as an apostle, particularly as an apostle to the Gentiles. And again, he's, he's asking for the believers of the small town church in Colossae to join him in his ministry to play a vital role in their intercessory prayers on, on their behalf. This past week, I participated in an initial exam for Avandro, who is a deacon at our sister church in Porto Alegre, Brazil. And he is seeking ordination to become the pastor of that congregation. And we were going over his written exam, and some of the, uh, the questions on the written exam he had completed are really geared more to a context of ministering in the United States. And, and so on a couple of occasions when we asked him to elaborate more uh, regarding some of his answers, particularly pastoral matters, it was fascinating to hear his excellent grasp of his context for ministry, of his understanding of the cultural challenges that he and his congregation face. They're profoundly in the minority as Christians, and then even more so as Reformed Protestants, 
and then even more as those who believe in Christian education for their children. So how can we help our brother and this small congregation? How can we come alongside of him in his ministry? It's not like we're going to jump on a plane and fly to Brazil and start sharing the gospel in his neighborhood or start a Christian school there because as far as I know, none of us are fluent in Portuguese. Now, we're not going to do that, but we can certainly pray in English. And more specifically, we can pray for him and the ruling elder there as they seek to shepherd the flock even after the recent resignation of the other deacon who has gone charismatic. And we can pray for him as he seeks to manage his teaching labors for the church, holds down a regular job, cares for his wife and two children, and continues to prepare for his ordination exam. And we can certainly pray for the Lord to continue to open up doors for the gospel in a dark city that needs the light of the gospel. We can be further devoted to prayer on behalf of our brother Evandro and the brothers and sisters of the Lord that he's been called to shepherd through our prayers. Well, even as Paul articulates this aspect of his own ministry, notice what he commands next in verse 5 regarding the ministry that the Colossians ought to have, that they ought to pursue. In wisdom walk among those outside, the time redeeming. The command is to walk, and as we've noted on other occasions, even as we commonly speak of in our own parlance, walk is associated with how we live the Christian life. But specifically, uh, Paul, quali- Paul gives a sp- specific qualification that we're to walk in wisdom. And this ties back into one of the main themes of the letter, is this is Paul's sixth and final use of the word wisdom, which we most recently heard in chapter 3 and verse 16, where Paul commands, The word of the Christ let it dwell in you abundantly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Wisdom is living skillfully in the fear of God, is to live according to God's word as the wise and not the fool. It is to understand how God has made the world and his laws that govern all things and to pursue above all things, uh, even as the fullness of wisdom, Christ himself. So Paul is calling for the Colossians, for the church to be perceptive about how to live their lives before the watching world. And don't miss the obvious point that there's an outward focus in what Paul is telling the Colossians to do, and that there will be contact with outsiders, those who are not part of the church. Paul is not insular. He's not calling for communes, but for believers to live where they are and to do so wisely. And then in the second half of the verse, we have another participle, which carries imperatival force, redeeming the time. One way for this particular word to be interpreted is to buy up or buy back. And so some contend that Paul is urging the Colossians to to snap up every opportunity like it's a bargain, to engage in intense activity. And we often take this verse to mean that Paul wants us to be busy, uh, to be using our time to get things done. And that's certainly one level of application for how believers are to conduct their lives. Some of you may recall back in 2017, when the actor David Cassidy died on account of organ failure, that his daughter Katie later revealed his final words. So much wasted time. There's a solemn solemn reminder in a story like that. Not to waste our time. To get to the end of our lives and have such a weight of regret. And Christian and non-Christian pundits alike uh, herald the, the fact that time is arguably our most precious commodity and that's something you never get back. Once it's gone, it's gone. 
And that's certainly true. And if you're lazy or constantly wasting time, which is pretty easy to do in our day and age, then you might need a kick in the pants to get going and to redeem the time. But we'd be mistaken to think that Paul is saying that believers are just to be incessantly busy. You know, think about what it means to redeem something in the context of the Bible. It means to ransom, to recover from the power of another. The ideas of redemption and salvation are integrally linked. We often use these two terms interchangeably. So, so could there be a sense in which the reconciling work of Christ, of all things, whether on earth or in heaven, is expressed through our own redeeming of time, not according to the old order of the world, but according to the new order in Christ? And could we say that a Christ-centered redeeming of the time not only involves activity, but also rest? See, we also have to recognize that it can be a faithful use of time to engage in Sabbath, in rest, to disengage from the usual hustle and bustle of life, to also have moments of calm, of fellowship, and of course, worshiping together as God's people. This is another way that we are redeeming the time. You know, perhaps the example, the examples of Martha and Mary in Luke 10 serve as a fair illustration. Uh, you recall how Martha was busy serving, no doubt, uh, an important task, uh, doing important tasks that needed to be done. But Mary sat at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. And if you're more like Martha, then sometimes remember it's good to be like Mary on occasion, who was also redeeming the time in what she was doing. Well, still more, we, we redeem the time through our conduct and even by engaging in the qualities that Paul articulated in chapter 3 and what we're to put on. Those are always ways in which we're restoring and shaping the world to more greatly reflect Christ. Not surprisingly, redeeming the time takes wisdom, it takes maturity, but to such we are called as the church. The blueprint for which is found in the scriptures and, of course, in the example of Jesus himself. Finally, in verse 6, Paul gives his last instruction. The word of you always in grace, for salt having been seasoned, to know how it is necessary for you each one to answer. Paul spoke of the necessity for him to speak in verse 4, and now that's paralleled by the necessity of the Colossians to answer. And the primary level of application is speaking to outsiders. And what are the characteristics? Well, first, with grace, with favor. There's a certain goodwill toward outsiders that should be an attribute of our speech with unbelievers. The word of believers should mirror the word of God, of Christ himself, always full of grace. Second, Paul says their speech is to be salty. Now, in English, salty speech means crude speech, like cussing like a sailor or something like that. But that's not what it means here. In the ancient world, salt was a preservative and also added for flavor, even as it's used today. And so part of the picture here may be that the Colossian believers are to add flavor to society. And they're to be interesting, witty, engaging, even humorous. The speech is to be flavorful and not bland, we might say. And this is likely the first level of understanding and application that Paul has in mind. However, another aspect regarding salt is that it was used in the sacrifices particularly the tribute offering as we read about in Leviticus 2. You shall season all your tribute offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your tribute offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. 
Salt also appears as chief ingredient in making covenants. We read about a, a covenant of salt in several places. And interestingly enough, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, Luke tells us of Jesus with the disciples, and while sharing salt with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. And Jesus is eating a meal in that context with the disciples. Uh, but it's literally sharing salt, so there's the sense where he's in covenant with them. Still more, we've noted on past occasions that salt is crystallized fire. It's solid fire. And how do we know this? Well, what happens when you put salt down on grass? It scorches the grass, doesn't it? Or what happens when you put salt on ice? It melts the ice. Those are properties of fire, aren't they? So there's, there's fire in the rock. In Mark 9, Jesus declares, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what might any of this have to do with Paul, with what is, Paul is telling the Colossians about how they speak to outsiders? Well, there's, there's quite a bit more we could say about salt and the variegated implications of it, but that would require a deeper dive than we'll give ourselves to today. But for our present purposes, perhaps we can say that Paul would have our speech toward outsiders have a flavor that reflects our being in covenant with Christ, a confidence that he is our Savior and King, that the world is his, and as those directed by the wisdom of his word, then we're able to reply to the inquiries that will invariably come. And to state the obvious, if you need to give an answer, that means you've been asked a question. So be ready. Know what you believe and why. Attend to the teaching of the church. Give yourself to the reading and study of Scripture. We're called to maturity. The church needs to be a mature people because the society in which we live and, well, in all forms of paganism and false religion are ultimately exercises in immaturity. But that's not for us. No, we want to grow up and we want to imitate our big brother, Jesus, and be like him, even as Paul details in Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, who is the head into Christ. So let us take to heart Paul's closing commands, further pursuing maturity through the habits of maturity, namely prayer with watchfulness and thanksgiving, by walking in wisdom and through gracious and salty speech. These are the kind of men and women and children that the church needed to be in the first century and the same kind are needed now. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and, and do ask that you would impress it ever more upon our hearts and lives that we might bear fruit to your honor and glory and that we indeed might be ready to give answer for the faith, for the hope that we have. And indeed, may we seek to make every opportunity that is presented to us to testify faithfully to what you have done, to what you are doing, and indeed to what you have promised you will do in this world and in the life to come. 
We ask that you would help us and strengthen us for these things by your word and by your spirit. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.